Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Zach Darnell. And joining me is my co-host today, Mr. Dave Matthew. Dave, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good, Zach. How are you? You know, I'm doing well today. Our guest for today's show, Mr. Tony Poon, he's the chief product officer over at R0. Now, R0 is a new vertical for me. I don't have any experience. They're, they're kind of focusing on this world of biosafety. I think some of the challenges that we talked through with Tony, things that he's facing, are a little unique. We talked from everything around battling your ego as a, as a product leader to kind of their world and the world of biosafety. And then kind of wrapping up with leading people and the people aspect, which is you know awesome for us as a show, the things we care about. And I had a, a huge aha moment in this show. This is a world that I know very little about. There's a machine that exists, folks, that you can press a button. It will, quote unquote, sanitize all of the surfaces in the air in the room. And you come back in and it's fully sanitized. If I think he said five to seven minutes, something like that. It's like the 90s bug bomb meets today's air purifier. I don't know. It's probably a terrible analogy, but that's what I was thinking about in my mental model. And I was really stuck on it for 10 minutes. Like, wow, this really exists. Like, that's crazy. I don't know. What was something that you pulled out of the show that you think was interesting? I think just kind of around this product, I mean, you're talking about something that's invisible. We can't see germs, but we have a strong feeling, especially nowadays, about whether something is safe or sanitary now. So it can always be a challenge when you have more of a scientific invisible product that you're selling. And how do you market that and develop your product? Because what you're actually selling is more a feeling of comfort or trust or safety yeah. that, you know, you're, you can, you can be in the space and relax. Mm. It's so. less tangible, even though the physical product is tangible, but the value it creates is yeah. it's hard to really wrap your head around. So I just thought it was a fun conversation, definitely a new world for me. So without further ado, let's dive into the show. Mr. Tony Poon, thank you for joining us here on Behind the Product. How are you today? I didn't even ask you that when you joined. Uh, doing great. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day here in California with some chaos around school starting, but, you know, nothing like trying to get back into some kind of a routine after summer. That's a fair point. You know, summer excitement. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I share the excitement and pain of school starting. Both of my boys, uh, well, my youngest will be back on Monday. My oldest has been back for a couple of weeks now. So getting into that rhythm, it's fun. Yeah, same here. Nothing short of excitement, uh, as usual. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dave and I are really interested. To, this is a, a world that I know nothing about, quite frankly, the the kind of world of biosafety. I don't even know if I'm thinking of that correctly, but I'm, I'm excited to learn more. You know, the when I was doing a little bit of research on you and your background and some of the things that you're working on now, things that you've done in the past. I kind of want to talk a little bit about all of it. Can we do that? Can we, can we, can we be broad today? I'm certainly game. Just uh, channel me because otherwise I'll continue to talk and uh, it'll, I'll talk your ear off. So just, just tell me when to stop. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. Well, one of the things that I was reading a little bit about, um, you've talked about like ego being the product killer. And I thought that would be an interesting place 
to start. So I'm curious, tell me a little bit about kind of the way that you think about our egos when it comes to product development and maybe some of the advice that you've given folks over time. Maybe start there. So, I mean, I can certainly talk about many of the mistakes I've made as well. That's perfect um, learning area. I think ego is a catchphrase, so to speak, but it's really about whether or not we are empathizing with what the customer actually needs. The second we feel like we are smarter than the customer is when like ego is at full bore. It's influencing everything that you're doing. I find myself sometimes like passion takes over. I feel really passionate about like, I have this great solution. And then you lose yourself for a few days or a few weeks without asking, what does a persona think? How is this impacting our persona's workflow? And then when you, not too long later, then you realize, oh crap, we're no longer solving the pain point that the customer actually have. We're solving a problem in a really, really nice way, but it's just actually not the original goal that we set out to go solve for. Many mistakes were made here in many different facets, uh, many different points in the product development process by me personally. But some of the things that I grown to appreciate and simple tricks that I try myself and I, you know, I happen to sometimes remind people of if they're in need is just take a pause and use a very simple sentence of whoever your persona, whoever your customer is, what would this person do? When you find yourself using a lot of eyes in describing use cases is a good time to pause. This is why like, you know, sometimes it's like something as simple as trying to train yourself to write use cases and epics and stories in a customer's name first forces you to take like a microsecond pause to make sure the subsequent words in that use case isn't coming from you. That's like a very simple and actually applicable one that you don't like have to frameworks or sticky notes on your monitor. Like if you start training yourself to start doing that more often, you're drastically reducing the probability of it just getting away from you. What's your thoughts on the idea between balancing intuition and data-driven decision-making? How do you draw that line a little bit? I think it starts somewhere. You know, if you have an existing product, you have a large customer base, you are more than likely going to start from data-driven hypotheses. I have spent unknowingly, to be honest, the last more than 10 years now in earlier stage startup where it always typically start with an observation. And those observations typically are not yet connected with customers. You don't have a large cohort to draw from. So that's where like intuition or passion or ideas really lead the effort. But I think the question really comes to how are you going to make decision? It isn't where the problem start is like, how are you going to funnel those into a decision making call it process or not that you, you feel good about and that you have attributes that are rooted in customer to draw from so that you you have something to come back on when something changes. Oftentimes, I find that decisions are made unknowingly good or bad until something goes bad. And then you come back and re-inspect it. You're like, oh, well, that's where the decision went wrong. So to me, it's really about the decision point. That's where conviction from data versus intuition, as you put it, kind of make a distinction. Do you think that you know, somebody is going through their career, maybe they're young and they're, you know, product management uh, maturity. Do you think that there's a point where you kind of learn some of this inherently? Or do you think that there are, I don't know, more formal ways to pick up some of these tools and techniques and kind of move towards uh, more of an intuitive, maybe being confident in your own intuition? I love what you're trying to put out. I don't think you can be good at product management without intuition. You just have to have these instincts about what is good experience. 
what is a good use, use flow, what is simple. Those are just good product instincts that somebody just kind of need to have in order to be really good at their jobs when it comes to product management. I do think a good way to balance is write things down. And that's what I think is really powerful for a lot of folks who are really intentionally driving hypotheses-driven experimentations and discovery. Like a lot of that is like, obviously you're accountable for your, what your hypotheses are. Therefore, you're not straying too far off. That's what, because in discovery, you tend to kind of go over the place before too long, you realize I'm in a different state. So that's really good for that. But I think the hypothesis like does a very simple thing, which is forcing you to write it down. And then when you write it down, you force yourself to reinspect and dig a little deeper on like, again, is this from me? Is this from the customer? And what do I really mean by this? So for me, like frameworks or not, I think there's a very simple tool, hypotheses-driven experimentation or discovery that has double duty on both of those things. Can you give us maybe some examples for maybe some situations that you've applied some of these techniques in as you've been working on developing products? It's a fantastic question. It comes with a lot of pain uh, <laughs> because uh, oftentimes, and it still happens to me more than I like that you realize, oh crap, we didn't do that here. Mm. <laughs> I have a couple of examples that are memorable. I won't use current uh, examples, but previously, one of the organizations I was part of was focusing on kind of autonomous flying robots like drones. We can nerd out on that later. <laughs> focusing really on enterprise industrial markets. So in, in our case, it was uh, construction and mining. So very, very hazardous environment. And one of the use cases, like, first of all, drones, right? We have lasers and stuff and bolted on the thing that flies. Awesome. So like any chance we can pull out the guns, we want to, and we try to. And one of the cases we got really passionate about, myself included, I was the one guilty on this one, that we wanted to apply to a use case where we wanted to automate a lot of boots on the ground activity. And in those industrial environment, it's predominantly what drives costs because you send people out, you do things, you survey, you move things or you fix things. So we got really passionate about like, hey, we can send drones and use LIDAR. You can use cameras and it would just fly everywhere. It would just don't send people anymore. And it all sounded great. It's all really logical. We even mapped our workflows. And we even got some early antidotes from some of the users that said like, I would love that. If you could do that, then I don't have to go out. And that's all great. And before we like really committed on building it, we realized that there were regulations on top of the users that were driving them to having to be there physically. So the use cases were great and even users gave good feedback, but we didn't expand our scope large enough to ask the why deeper to understand like, oh, there was actually a macro force at play here that is preventing the use case to go this way. So it wasn't like a pure case for like, we thought it was a good idea when we built it, it was a little bit of a hybrid case of like, we thought it was a good idea. We did some light research that fed our conviction a little bit. So like, yep, yeah, that's it, go. We didn't do it rigorous enough to kind of ask a couple of levels deeper to uncover there was actually a different reason for the workflow to be that way for the last 20, 30, or 40 years. I'm kind of curious about biosafety. <laughs> Can we transition to biosafety? <laughs> I've been itching here to, to move into this because it is a little relevant, maybe just a little bit for the last couple of years. Yeah, unfortunately so, yes. Just a hair. And, you know, I think about the things that I do today to clean my house. 
wiping down counters, mopping floors, you know, like just the things I do at home. I'm sure we do stuff here at the office. Tell me a little bit about like our zone and the biosafety world. Paint a broad picture for us of what the space that you guys play in, what that means. So the company I work for, R0, so I'm responsible for the product management side of things. So it's actually a very interesting, but a little bit of a frustrating story, which is the onset really is none of us think about this every day. Why? Because we live in a first world country, to be honest. And there are many things that we use every day are highly regulated and we know to be safe. Like the toothpaste that we use, the water that you drink, and even the bubble gum that you chew, like they are regulated. So you have some trust in it. But it turns out that as human being, the tens of thousands of breaths that you take every day uh, is actually not regulated. Now, that hasn't been a problem. So it hasn't really been something that people think about too much unless you're in environments that just have adverse conditions from like a large macro social environment where just pollution is really bad in your area. And then therefore you have this like a macro level problem, but predominantly we don't think about it much. But like you said, we happen to have a bit of a catalyst in the last few years that have accelerated and put a spotlight on like, oh, it turns out we as a human society is completely not prepared to deal with or even think about what does it mean to have indoor safety when it comes to the air or the surfaces or just viruses in general. So the founders at R0 made that a very, very personal problem because they wanted to help seeing all the catastrophe that was happening around the world. So they asked themselves, well, what can we do about this? Some of the aha moments were, and this is where things were a little frustrating, to be honest, for I think all of us. You mentioned it a little bit, like the muscle memory that we have in terms of like how we clean. Every one of us know how we have, we may have different brands that we prefer. We may have like, I use spray, I use wipe, like fine, but it's muscle memory at this point. We know how to do it, but it turns out if you go actually read the labels of those, whatever cleaner that you use, the actual way that it would work and the only way it would work is if you douse the surfaces of the entire thing for three to four minutes, leave it there, and then you wipe it down. Think about the last time you actually done that. <laughs> I'm cringing yeah. myself right now a little bit. Yeah. I don't do it. You know, so when you step back, you're like, okay, so we know how to disinfect, we know how to clean things, but as it turns out, it doesn't actually work because that's actually not how people apply it. To make it even worse, the last few years have exacerbated the fact that when you think about the science of pathogen transmission, there's actually three major modes of transmission. There's obviously services there's air, and then there's person to person. Like the other two modalities in addition to surfaces are just completely unmitigated, at least outside of a medical hospital setting. So that paints a, there seems like there's a problem here from a product person perspective, right? Hmm, problem. That's a problem space. <laughs> uh, and then because of the last few years, it's very clear that there's a problem space, but you have to kind of categorize it in a way about, well, what is a problem space? What does the science tell you, like how to think about the problem? So it's, that's actually really interesting and important thing about our company is we didn't want to just build stuff and say it works or just build band-aids or vitamins. We want to actually solve the problem. And the only way we knew how was we got to go back to the science. So going back to understand epidemiology, how pathogens spread and all that stuff. What it turns out was there is a set of technologies that been used in hospitals for decades that are very, very good at controlling and reducing pathogen loads in a given space. It just never got out of that community because there wasn't demand for it. 
well, now there's demand. So the company set out to actually go and say, how do we modernize that? How do we democratize that so that it becomes accessible for places where there's highest risk of people being exposed? That's how actually a company was born. The first product that we built is a mobile product. Think of it as like a tactical nuke. You roll it into a room, uh, <laughs> you press a button, you leave the room, and in five to seven minutes, the entire space, air and surfaces are disinfected, so to speak. It's measured by how much pathogen you deactivate. So there's lots of scientific paper. So we actually measure all of that to make sure that scientifically we are correct. So that's the first product. And then because of the science, we know that there are multiple modalities of transmissions. It, our mission really is, well, how do we help as many people as possible make the indoor space safe? So then you have to ask, well, where are the places with the highest risk and how are they transmitted? And something like um, the mobile product that treats unoccupied spaces, great, that's one. But the other is, what about occupied spaces? So we have two other products called Beam uh, and Vive that really work when people are in the room and disinfect in real time. So that's when we come back and say, like, from a scientific perspective, we can properly cover all the angles for disinfecting spaces and hopefully helping people get back to whatever normal looks like in the coming years. So we're office first. We've been back in the office for about nine months. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't thought about any of this, anything like this. We've had different periods of different precautions based on CDC guidelines and such, but I have not thought about machines and products that you can wheel in and clean and disinfect an entire area. That's, I'm actually kind of surprised that that exists from a commercial residential perspective. Like this is a consumer grade product, right? We think it's going to be very exciting and also we hope that it will not only because of only R0, but just in general, that people will understand that we now have the technologies and the tools and the infrastructure to actually make it better. R0 or not, obviously, we want to play a big part in it, but the technology is here. We can do it. And there's obviously a lot of exposure and education that needs to be done in any market creation. That's the phase that we're in. Like We're changing a conversation on what people mean by cleaning. But what we really want to say is we want to make a space safe. What, that's the outcome that we want. What are the things that we need to do in order to go do that? And, you know, being anchored on science and we want to have the biggest impact possible towards our mission, which is helping to make as many spaces safe and impact human health. So it actually comes back to, we, we actually started building modeling on understanding, well, where are the places with the highest risk for people? And based on the science, it turns out because of the three modalities that we talked about, it's really where people congregate the most. So if you think about schools, if you think about public venues, if you think about companies with strong in-person culture, those are the places where some of these probability of transmission is the highest. So actually, that was the reason why it steered our company into focusing on enterprise so that we can make the biggest impact that we can. Obviously, we're not a nonprofit company. There's also other reasons why. But that really was the two driving forces behind like, this is the market we should enter. So right now, we're not necessarily focused on consumer because we, from, from the science perspective, that's really the mission first. We got to go after that because it helps the most people. We, at least we believe in the science tells us that. Yeah, I mean, we've invested in like air purifiers at our house in the last couple of years. You know, that's been a helpful, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how much that's helped, to be honest with you. We have them. They run. <laughs> we change the filters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you said something really interesting. It's, it, this is actually a very interesting product management problem. 
like how do you prove that you have solved a problem when it's invisible, right? This is about the customer satisfaction, right? Like imagine you buy something, you never know it works. Like, okay, I don't think I'll buy it again because I don't think it, I don't know if it works. You just actually, you just said that verbatim. I, I think it works. I feel great about it. The fact that I have it. That's like a very interesting product management challenge of like, okay, how do we verifiably prove that something has been done? And then also, how do we make people feel like something has been done? There's the technical aspect of proving that it is safe. And then there's one more aspect of like, well, making people feel safe. Because fundamentally, we're dealing with like an invisible problem. So it's a super interesting product management, not only product management, to be honest, like every facet of the customer experience. That's actually a front and center question that we're kind of constantly noodling around. How has that dynamic kind of influenced your marketing of the product and as well your customer development and product development processes? And what have you learned in that space as far as asking people the right kinds of questions to really get at what they're thinking behind those things? Because you're really kind of selling something scientific you can't see, like you were talking about, but also this feeling of safety and trust and kind of connecting that verification of something scientific-y is happening, that, but I can't see it. So how do I create the trust in that? Like, I'm curious, how do you develop around that? We're all still learning. I don't think we're unique in this. I think it goes with, you know, almost all market creation mode type organizations. People don't know what this is. People don't know that it can be solved and therefore there's no demand for it. So when you ask your typical questions, you're not going to uncover the problem because people don't even know that they can talk about the problem because they don't know it could be solved. Is to the end of a spectrum is what I found when we're doing customer research. It's very easy to have confirmation bias because we're leading the customer on like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we can make a safer space? Yes. Okay, great. Let's build. Like You could very easily find yourself in that spot. And then on the other side, you can also very easily find out like people don't want this because you can ask like very direct, like, wouldn't it be great? Or do you have this problem? They're going to tell you no, because they don't think about it. We find ourselves having to ask around what is the workflow? A lot of the whys they do certain things that they do today and try to draw connections to what well, we could do it better because this is actually the ultimate outcome. For example, like if you think about cleaning, Asking deeper on what what do organizations clean for, and then figuring out which persona care about what part of the cleaning. It sounds very nuanced, but as a matter of fact, because it's such a big muscle memory and you got to have to unpack it, that's actually kind of some of the things that we're trying to do. What is the current type of workflows that you do and why, and how do we unpack that and start drawing connections that ultimately has the same outcome, but you didn't realize it was part of that workflow? It's interesting that you mentioned a little bit ago, like the feeling that somebody gets around like the trust in the product. Uh, in the last couple of years, there's, I've read so much debate around how to keep everybody safe and terms like hygiene theater have come out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I, I kind of think I understand what that means, but I'm by no means an expert. You go into some places, they've got plexiglass Dividers of some areas, some or some stores and in different places don't do that. And I don't know, I'm kind of curious, like how much of that has influenced you guys for our zone and the way that you've tackled product management because there's such a diverse belief among potential clients, right? Customers and buyers. 
it comes back to design, at least from our perspective, we don't start ideating around products unless we know science has already proven that it works and how it works. Like we dig really deep from that perspective. Like when we're kind of ideating and actually going down paths, we already know that it works. But I think to your point, and maybe this is tangent to your point, but like it comes down to deployability. Some of the hygiene theaters that you described, like because those were doable, right? You can buy plexiglass, you can buy masks. Well, I mean, that's a whole different conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> but these are things that one could do easily. I think it comes back to like, okay, so now you have a set of technology and solutions that verifiably works, proven by science, highly efficacious. But I think the question is, is it deployable? Because if it's not, then nothing matters. Time to value or deployability or simplicity, those are like really, really important for categories like this to take off. Because if the friction is too high, then you're going to be stuck in these niches where only people are seeking out and already understand the science will come to you. Not to say like it's not the case from early market formation, but being able to have escape velocity really requires like how deployable is this thing? Is it easy to use? Do people have to jump through hoops? Because all of those things will basically cap our market. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm noodling here. It's August 2022. You know, you just kind of blew my mind a little bit that there is a device out there that I can buy from my office here that, you know, I can hit a button and it makes me think of, what are they, like the bug smoke bomb things, you know, that you deploy <laughs> in your house, <laughs> hit it and run, come back and, you know, all the bugs are going to be gone. That's right. What's two to five years from now look like? How quickly is this technology and the things that Arizona and other companies are diving into, what's that roadmap look like? Ultimately, our goal is to create safer indoor spaces. Disinfection is very pertinent and is very real impact. And it's not really just about COVID. COVID was like an accelerant that put a spotlight on it. Think about all of the times that you went into the office or your kids brought home. And those are things that we just learned to deal with because we had no other way. What we think, it, it just doesn't need to be that way because now we have the means to go actually do something about that. But stepping back though, disinfection is only one of the things that makes spaces not as healthy as it can be. So over time, not really sure when the horizons are, but over time is really about what are other means to which that people are having suboptimal health because of the spaces. So it could be things in the air, it could be pollutants, it could be because of other bacteria even. Actually, it turns out once you dig into it, there are many of those factors. But the real question is, are they truly impacting society at a level that needs to be solved? If so, then those will become our missions as well. So the mission really helped guide us on a lot of these, which is one, if you want to have, you know, impact, make positive impact on human health, you got to have the science to understand it because otherwise you're just selling gadgets. And then when it comes to people, you really do not want to sell gadgets because when you see things, sometimes it pains us to see is not only do things don't not work, sometimes they hurt. And that's a really, really big problem. And that's one of the problems company like us will have to solve for, which is not only to educate people about our products, but educate people about the science so that they know how to filter things that not only doesn't help, it hurts you. To answer your question is really about multimodal. How do we make indoor spaces safe beyond just disinfection alone over time? You hit on something a second ago that COVID was an accelerant. It's not necessarily that this is in direct response to that. There's a lot of product companies out there that 
have different versions of accelerants in their markets and in their in their verticals. How has that having COVID as an accelerant influenced how you've shown up as the product leader in our zone? And what do you think is something that you kind of learned through that that maybe other people could apply to their companies? That's actually a very insightful problem because sometimes it's very easy to solve the problem in front of you and not realize that there's potentially kind of a, a bump on the road as it kind of start forking. So it definitely influences the urgency to which that we go after opportunities at R0. But also we tend to be very first principle driven, which is actually a good attribute to have in a context of like, you have an accelerant, you don't know what the future looks like. Is that going to be a core nugget that you can hang on to that's durable? But the fact that we come back to the first principle in science is really, to be honest, I think is the part that makes us strong and give us lasting power is because we didn't go and say, we want to be a COVID company. We went and said, we want to create safer spaces. And then we came back to first principles on, well, what are the problems that are pertinent that are solvable that we can earn the right to continue to build and scale? So that's kind of the way we have approached it as a company. Not to say sometimes there aren't like squirrels and you're like, yeah, a big opportunity. And you, <laughs> you're always going to have those guitar string and you plug it, it's going to bounce back and forth. But we're centered around the outcome and the outcome is larger than a single event that we're seeing today. I love that. It's wise to, even when something, you have those squirrel moments, it's so, it's human nature. Yeah. Going back to ego, yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to want to jump after it, like, oh, let's go. But why do we exist? What's our mission? What are we trying to do? How does this, how does this influence us, but not consume us? The adrenaline of solving problems is real. And sometimes it really takes you away from the path that you thought you were supposed to be on or you were aligned to be on. That's so good. Another thing I was wanting to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, you've been around and worked at quite a few companies from, I think, you know, Apple and Logitech, Sony, and kind of grown into an organizational leader over the years. How has that influenced you as a leader? Like, what are some of the experiences that helps you show up in a leadership role with your people and your peers on a day-to-day basis? I'll say that one of the things that I realized I had to learn really, really hard and continue to learn is the ability to listen, especially when you get away from being able to see all the data, see all the different connections in your workflow and how your product is working. The inability to listen means that you're going to steer and put the wrong guardrails and therefore eventually, basically, you're going to be doing the wrong thing. But listening is really hard and really listening is even harder. So, you know, learning the fact that I needed to learn how to listen and compounding with the fact that I realized in order for you to learn how to listen, you have to be really patient. Both things that I was really not that great at. Those were like the two things I I was very conscious about. Here are the two things that I really, really need to grow in in order for me to do the job that I'm supposed to do, which is help the team do the work so that we can achieve goals. Well, I want one tactical nugget, one tactical piece of advice. I'm both not naturally patient and not naturally (laughs) quiet. (laughs) A little bit of an extrovert, hence a podcast. (laughs) So... One piece of advice, and this is self-serving, hopefully anybody listening to this might uh, benefit from this, that helped you get better at listening. 
the couple of things that I have learned that is useful depending on the situation. One is tell yourself to shut up. I do that a lot. Like just remind yourself, like, I know you want to speak. Shut up. <laughs> Sometimes like if you tell yourself a few times and then you realize, okay, now is the time to speak. And then the other one is, this is somewhat counterintuitive, but I promise it actually does work, which is you actually, you can actively listen. So listening isn't only about passive listening, but actively listening to me at least means you're asking unbiased question, but seek deeper understanding. I think that's a very, very powerful technique that I am still learning. Active listening to me is so powerful because it engages the conversation, but at the same time, you're both committed in going deeper in kind of finding out what is the deeper knowledge in that whatever topic that is. Very hard, mostly because I inevitably inject some of my ideas or I lead the question. So lots of pitfalls around like, if you don't do it well, you will nuke the conversation. But when you build the trust, when you kind of find your groove with the group, active listening, it's something that I consciously, consciously try to achieve every opportunity I get. I love that. I think it's a Walt Whitman quote, be curious, not judgmental. That is a thing I learned in Ted Lasso. I love Ted Lasso. (laughs) (laughs) I love the character. I love the show. And I actually, believe it or not, have a sticky note to myself that's right in front of me that is reminding myself to reduce my verbal confirmations like, ah, and right, and mm, (laughs) even though it is my way of staying actively engaged in a conversation. Um, But I'm with you. That is a very hard thing. So I'm always looking for new tips and tricks. We're both students. Oh, we're all three of us are students. (laughs) That's what makes product management fun. Yeah. If anybody tells you to have a playbook, they're not telling you everything. (laughs) Yes. It's interesting because I think it's important. Like what you just shared is important for both people, like organizational people leadership and product management. That ability to listen and connect and empathize, like it's true for both roles, for both hats. I love that. I've been accused many times over my career is like, Tony, why are you so quiet in meetings? And sometimes I have the urge to like change myself. Oh, maybe I should be louder. Maybe I should show up more. Maybe I should be more of the star. And then every time I think about that harder, I'm like, nope, that's at least one. It's not authentically me. The other is like, look, I actually want to listen to what other people have to say so that I can form better opinions. I love it. Well, Tony, I appreciate you very much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot. I have a lot more research to go do. Biosafety, a whole new world for me. Oh, hey, man, don't dive too deeply into the hole. It's a deep hole, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to help you with the journey, if at all useful. (laughs) I appreciate it so much. Thank you for spending some time with us and sharing your experiences. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy uh, to chat again in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. 